0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Promise, a podcast about healthcare that delivers on our promise to know you, care for you, and ease your way. On this podcast, we will talk with healthcare professionals and hear stories of compassion to help you navigate the world of healthcare with dignity, care, and humanity. I'm your host, Nancy Jordan, Chief Mission Integration Officer. And here with me today are three caregivers for Providence Hospice, Orange County South. Jenny Russell, clinic manager and RN, Caroline Paleo, hospice nurse, and Rochelle Cook, licensed clinical social worker. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about caring for the at-home caregiver. In addition to the other things they may have going on in their life, like a full-time job, running a household, Parenting, they must find time to care for someone who needs a lot of care. We want to talk about how best to help them so that they may continue to give the best possible care to their loved ones. Welcome, Jennifer, Caroline, and Rochelle. Thank you for joining me to talk about this important and often overlooked topic. Yes, thank you for having us. Yes, thank, thank you. you for having us. Pleasure. I am very excited to speak with you today about how we can best help the caregiver. Caring for loved ones in our home is something that most of us will experience in our lifetime. Often these caregivers and the hard work they do is expected, and therefore the caregiver is not fully appreciated for how much work they're doing on top of everything else they are already doing. Mm -hmm. As hospice workers for our home and community care division, you go into people's homes. So I'm guessing you must witness or recognize when a caregiver needs a break or help. I'm hoping you can share tips and information and perhaps a few stories with our audience about best practices for helping a caregiver who may not take the time they need to care for themselves. So as we begin, I would love to learn just a little bit about each of you and the roles you have here at Providence. Rochelle, let's start with you. Since you're right on my first square.
1: Thanks. So yes, I've been a social worker since 2011. Um, I actually have experience working with families and little ones in foster care, adoptions, and as I guess I got older, started working with adult population. Working in addictions, I did inpatient work, and then through that, I kind of found myself doing hospice care. Um, I've been with Providence for about six years now. and for me personally, too, me and my husband were caregivers for my mom with Parkinson's for two years, and then it her need just kind of became a little higher than what we could do because we were working and have little ones, too, in the home that we had to move her into a boarding care. But my team um, was able to provide the hospice care for her and her end-of-life services. So very familiar with this topic of um, needing support for the caregiver as we've been one of the families that receive the support
0: from hospice. Yeah. Well, in that journey that you just described professionally, as well as personally, I, in my mind, env- envisioning all of those caregivers that went into assisting with foster care, assisting with addiction and family members who have, you know, suffered with addiction and then all the way to your journey as caregivers yourself. So we'll come back to the oh, yeah. stories, if you don't mind. Yeah, 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 Jenny, tell us about you and your role.
2: So I am the clinical manager for Providence OC South for the North team, Um, get to work with Caroline and Rochelle, worked with them for quite a while. Um, Rochelle and I actually started in the field together. I was one of the RN case managers out in the field for about five years and then started, uh, took on the role as a clinical manager, kind of stepped up. I get to kind of guide in the difficult situations or when we get stuck, you know, whether it's with caregiving or just day to day,
0: I kind of help them
2: talk it through and and get through all of that.
0: So you're really influencing those who are supporting (laughs) the caregivers, you're really in a leadership role. And yes. I'm sure you have lots of uh, encounters to share, both in yeah. directly supporting you know, caregivers, but also in supporting caregivers who are supporting caregivers. Yes, yes, I've
2: been doing this for a long time, doing hospice case management since about 2011 is when I started, right out of graduating my nursing program and just kind of fell into taking care of the elderly. It just, it's been my
0: passion passion, calling, vocation. You really can tell that all three of you, I can already tell that you are really, really committed to this work. Caroline, how about you? (laughs) Hi, Nancy.
3: (laughs) Yes, so I've also been in um, hospice for quite some time. I actually started out as my LVN self, fell into it after um, graduating and really a temporary position became a great passion of mine. I got to work alongside direct patient care for those who are at their end of their life, um, actively dying. And I saw all the RN case managers come in on a daily basis and saw how the, the team and interdisciplinary team worked with the families, the patients to help support them. We again, come into the situation where there sometimes it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel Mm -hmm. um, as we are caring for those at end of life. But to be able to make a difference and support them through this journey, not only the patients, but also the family, makes a tremendous difference in the memory they have of their loved ones passing. So I have um, since then still stayed in hospice. And um, there are ups and downs and difficult challenges. But The team that I have is phenomenal. Um, Really great guidance from Jenny, Rochelle. I mean, I don't think we've ran into a situation where we haven't been able to kind of handle as a group. So Mm -hmm. to ensure the best possible way to ease this family and patient's way. Yeah.
0: Well, I can absolutely pick up that you are a collaborative team, and it's making me think that this is what our caregivers need, is a team that's confident and experienced. When might they make the jump to know that they need you, that they need support, or they need their knee-deep in all of their caregiving, and oh my gosh, where am I going to turn for help and support? And I mean, there's a number of questions in there, I realize, but... (laughs) I guess that the most obvious is, you know, how do I know I need you? So
1: in terms of hospice services, because we are treating symptoms and care at end of life, usually the patient and family have already done so many aggressive forms of treatment or have done so many different kinds of hospitalizations and rehabs before they actually end up to us. So for most of our families, they've already been caring for their loved one for a long time already by the time they get to us. Every so often, though, we do have a patient that, you know, they might have been diagnosed with a terminal illness suddenly, or they might be a young family. And so then we're kind of like the first to kind of come in to support them because they don't want to seek aggressive treatment anymore or something like that. But um, most times they've already been doing the caregiving for a long time and been making it work somehow, whether they're getting burned out or not. We don't know what we're walking into. Every family's different. (laughs) But that's what the team is there for is to really assess, you know, with Medicare, it is um, a hospice, like it's a Medicare benefit, hospice Mm -hmm. services are a Medicare benefit where we come in as a team. So we have the nurse case manager to manage, you know, medications and symptoms. We have our bath aid to help with personal care and bathing. We have our chaplain for spiritual support. And then I come in for psychosocial support and resources because a lot of times they've already been grieving their loved ones losses and their as their disease has been progressing up into the point that they get to us in hospice.
0: You, so you're working not just with the patient but you are working directly with the caregiver. You Correct. are caregivers. Yes. Yeah. The family, yes. the loved ones. Yes. What are the signs that you look for how would you know if they're really stretched beyond their limit? Especially it makes sense that by the time you come in there's been a long Yes. Possibly a long uh, period <laughs> of time where these caregivers, these loved ones, family members have been supporting their their person. So, what are, what are you seeing that you know that? Oh no, we need to really provide wrap our arms around this family. What are the signs? So
2: usually when you walk in, you can you can pick up on it throughout your kind of just regular talk and conversation. I've had some who just simple tasks become really difficult. I had one call me one time because they couldn't remember how to open a pill bottle. They've been doing this for months, years, their whole life, and it just, when they get into that overwhelmed state, they they can't think it through anymore. So when you start to see simple things like that, or they become more distant, uh, they become angry and aggressive sometimes Mm -hmm. at, at the patient. And it just, you can tell they're just overwhelmed and they need a moment. Uh, Some self-care is Mm -hmm. really, you know, in order to take care of somebody else, you, you have to take care of yourself first. And I always would reiterate that to the families. As soon as I start hearing that, that kind of negative talk, it's usually their sign of, okay, this isn't their normal, they're feeling overwhelmed, and then just kind of letting them talk it out with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where the team kind of comes into play is, you know, if, if you've been with somebody, maybe Rochelle, the social worker, can come in and sit with them and kind of walk them through things and kind of really dig in to those needs that they're feeling. And sometimes they, they'll even just say, I feel trapped here. Mm-hmm. I feel alone and I'm trapped. I can't get out of the house. I, what do I do about groceries? And it just, yeah. that list kind of goes on and on. And it's like, okay, I'm hearing you. So those are the, the signs. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, you mentioned the, the pill example, and it just made me think uh, several years ago, my 46 year old sister-in-law uh, was diagnosed with leukemia. Mm -hmm. And she was a single mom of two young children. And so, you know, the immediate family just, well, friends as well, rallied around her. I mean, we we did what we needed to do. We cared for her. We cared for the kids. But I remember one day going to the grocery store. And I think people were coming over to the house or, you know, I'm not really sure. Anyways, I had to go to the grocery store. And this is a grocery store I have been to every week, at least once a week for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And I could not remember where the eggs were. Mm -hmm. i literally had no idea where the eggs were and i just stopped and froze in the aisle Mm -hmm. and i literally felt paralyzed Mm -hmm. and it was the strangest experience for me because i i pride myself on having a lot of control (laughs) but it's amazing how your foundation can get either slowly eroded or ripped away yeah so, I mean, here, it almost gives me, you know, sort of affirmation to say, hey, no, you hit a wall. I mean, that and that's perfectly understandable. Yeah. yeah. We it have,
1: Yeah, we have seen it where they, the spouse or the adult child or whoever's caring for a patient does get even somatic symptoms or get ill themselves or get injured themselves caring for
0: their, mm. their patient. So it is something we try to watch out for. Rochelle, how did you know that you and your husband had met your limit in caring for your family member if we don't um, caring?
1: Yeah, that's okay. At that time I was a stay at home mom. We had two little ones. My husband was the one going to work full time and with Parkinson's really affects her quality of life and her mobility and being able to bear weight and such and i'm not like a trained caregiver myself i'm just the daughter that i was like oh i can give her meals and medication that's easy but when it was lifting her and transferring her and like i would have to wait for my husband to get home from work to like transfer that's when i was like okay we need help or when she was having trouble at night sleeping because with parkinson's too there was some dementia involved too where she was having hallucinations and we weren't getting sleep Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we she would have um falls and this and that like she was getting injured while we were in the home. And I think that's when we're like, we, this is above what we can do. And so we did start with getting out of pocket care in the home to help us out, but then it just got to be a little bit too costly for us. So then we went into the boarding care route.
0: So the, the feelings or the experience of the caregiver who's sort of reaching a point of real stress, could yeah. be physical, could be emotional, yeah, could be any yeah. number of symptoms or displays, yes. behavioral displays.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think we were very fortunate to have the resources to hire care to get that extra help in the home. A lot of our families don't have that because it isn't covered by insurance or they didn't pay into a long-term care policy or anything like that. So a lot of these families, they, they just have to do it themselves. And even for me, culturally, I'm actually I'm Filipino. So it's one of those things like you take care of like your generations. It's a multi-generational household. You take care of one another. So even when we were realizing, oh my gosh, we can't do this. We need to get help from outside side or even placement. That was kind of outside of what is culturally accepted, I think. So that was a big decision for us.
0: Caroline, do family members sometimes feel ashamed or embarrassed when they reach that point where they can't? provide the support or guilty? What do you experience?
3: Yes. um, A lot of the common feelings is guilt and um, whether it's culturally or just them taking on the responsibility as being the children or primary caregiver, they feel they have failed their loved one if they're not able to continue to do their jobs in caring for them in a home setting. And kind of to branch uh, back to the original topic of how how they know that they're getting burnt out is um, a lot of the conversation should be starting with their primary care physician. Because during this time, they're gonna be going to the hospital, going to more doctor's visit because changes are continuing to happen. And it's becoming overwhelming for them to care for them in a home setting. And they end up being very frequent flyers to the hospital itself. So really um, having the primary care provider start that conversation and then kind of segues into in-home care, whether or not that's going to be an option um, to alleviate some of these guilty feelings. And sometimes, you know, it's as simple as finding the resources to be able to have Like a care team come in, whether it is home health or hospice, or if they do have financial means hiring a caregiver and that additional layer of support coming from our interdisciplinary team, whether it's, you know, bath aid, you know, a licensed care social worker and chaplain, just knowing they have more than just themselves makes a tremendous difference. And suddenly they are able to feel human again.
0: I'm kind of envisioning a toolkit, envision you all working with families, working with caregivers and patients. I'm thinking, you know, you're sort of putting together a, a, a sort of emotional first aid for them. And I, you know, hearing it very clearly in the team approach, the multidisciplinary approach and the way you are meeting sort of whole body, whole person care, which is something that we really value at Providence, the idea of supporting the mind, the heart and the spirit, and so all of the, the important team members that you have described really seem to be touching those those lives, those areas, all the areas of our, of our of caregivers' lives. One such tool that I'm curious um, your opinion about is social media. Uh, there is an app that we used with my sister-in-law, which was the CaringBridge app. And then there's GoFundMe. And then, of course, there's just general social media. Do you find that these are, are helpful to family members who are caregiving? Does it help to tell the story of what they're going through? So are, are those stories sort of for them or for the patient? Or what's happening with this sort of new approach or new tool in the last 10 years or so?
2: So it can be very helpful. I've had some family um friends who uh, recently were diagnosed with some cancer. And with that, it, you know, when they're still alert and oriented and able to communicate their needs and their wants, it's a great resource for them because it, it, it's little, it's on a phone or on a tablet. And it's something that they can take pictures or send videos of quick updates of how they're doing. And how their family is doing, especially when they have little kids, birthdays coming up, uh, we were able to, you know, see that they had a four year old little girl coming about, about to have a birthday to turn four, and she wanted to have a bunch of people at the front and sing her happy birthday. That's all, all she wanted. And so we were able to come and bring balloons and she loves animals. So we brought her some dogs and we're able to, to gift her with that through that social media piece. It also comes in very handy with planning out meals as a group and you know, wow. knowing their likes and dislikes for food. You Different apps have different resources that can help. And really figuring out which ones will help. There's the caring bridge. I believe there's Waywise. There's several out there. just depends on what they're looking for. Do
0: you ever find people, uh, caregivers resistant to recommendations you might have?
2: They hesitate. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's where really kind of letting them talk through what their needs are and letting them figure it out on their own, that this is where they feel that they're they're lacking or they need help or support, and then guiding them into those resources. And so it's, it's kind of their decision, but you've kind of laid the path for them, knowing that that's what's going to be coming up and, and that need that's going to be there.
0: Caroline or Rochelle, have you ever faced uh, a caregiver who has been hesitant as Jenny described or?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think um, really, at least for me, my work is just meeting our families and patients where they're at and supporting them in whatever decisions they make. You know, Even sometimes our patients themselves, they don't, they're alert and oriented and they really don't want extra help in the home and want to try to do things as independently as possible as they can or um, only want their spouse to be the caregiver. So it's just kind of meeting them where they're at, providing that support, like Jenny said, letting them air out or vent, because sometimes they don't have people to vent to or talk about their struggles with, because they want to appear like they got it together to their community, but sometimes the community does want to help too. So if we do see that there's somebody that has good support, whether it's their neighbors, their church, other extended family that's kind of popping in and out of the home we kind of encourage them to utilize them as a support we also have a couple things where we have a volunteer program where they can't do personal care with our patients but they can offer companionship and respite for a caregiver so even if it's for that caregiver to go out to the grocery store or go out on something just for themselves that they know and have peace of mind that there's somebody there with their loved one in case there's an emergency or to provide that companionship. Definitely encourage those things. And again, it's up to them if they're willing to accept those resources or even caregiving assistance as well.
0: Have you ever had caregivers uh, who differ in their acceptance or their understanding of where they are in this process with each other? And perhaps one family member says, oh my gosh, we need support. We're at our wit's end. And then the other family member equal caregiver says, no, we've got this. We're totally under control. I don't want any outsiders coming in.
1: Yes, frequently.
0: (laughs) Frequently. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. we always get, well, for me, I think we always give the right of uh, self-determination to the patient if they have capacity because we wanna honor their wishes. The goals of care of hospice can even be conflicting amongst different family members. But we always want to honor whatever the patient's wishes and help the other family members see what the patient wants. If we do see that the caregiver is struggling physically or getting ill or getting burnt out or reporting symptoms of withdrawn or being depressed or anything like that, then it's something we do try to bring in the team to come in and meet with the family and the patient and almost have it, it's almost like a care plan, family meeting where we can discuss these issues and really have a focused plan of care for them where um, they might try out like through our foundation maybe having some support in the home or um, respite or something like that or anything else we can do to help these families and patients know that they're not alone in these decision-making processes and like you said just like ease the way for our patients and families but again it's kind of having those open discussions with the people that have different opinions about what's going on in the
0: home. Very gentle approach, warm handoff. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you're overstepping? I mean, you're so balanced and professional. I'm sure that that isn't the case, but are there ever times where you just want to like, I want to say this and this is what I know you need, but you say it or, or you say it and you realize, Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or does that ever happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely try to be as professional as possible and have, you know, complete compassion and good bedside manners because it is an overwhelming experience. One, to care for a loved one, but then to also be on hospice and accepting their end-of-life care. And so it's kind of multi-layers a lot. And so we try our best to – because I think I would have regret if I didn't say anything (laughs) that could help support the patient and family, if there's something that could benefit them – I, I try my best to bring it up to them. But again, it's up to them if they want to accept the help or because sometimes it could be a cultural thing too where it's like their honor and privilege to do all the care and they don't want anybody else to do the care for their loved one. And so we want to respect that too.
0: I, I'm, I'm hoping that our listeners are hearing all of these possibilities and all these ways of being as caregivers in a way that affirms them and helps them realize that all sorts of reactions are, are common. I mean, every the, the feeling angry um, at help, wanting help, needing help, feeling guilty, the cultural influences, you know, they're not alone. What you all have shared has really shined a light on the realities for the at-home caregiver. As we start to wrap up, I'm wondering if you have any advice for the listener who is caring for a loved one at home and may be wondering if they're starting to feel stressed out or they are feeling guilty or any number of these um, sort of reactions that we've discussed today, what advice might you have for them?
1: I can go first. I think just having so much grace on yourself, <laughs> giving yourself a lot of patience and grace and space to feel all the things that you have said. Because there's most times... our our families do want the help. And they're like, please, we, we've been doing this for so long. We're burnt out. I haven't even washed my hair or anything <laughs> or something like that, that they do want the help. But for folks that are taking it all in and are doing all the things and are feeling overwhelmed, just letting yourself process what's going on and know that it's completely normal, that there is help out there. Even if you don't feel comfortable reaching out to families or your direct connections and if you don't have a home care option or hospice team in the home because you know not all folks that need caregiving are on hospice there are community resources out there like the caregiver resource center I believe they're like in most states now or even the department of social services where there are support groups and case management and oftentimes respite for your loved one too so that you don't have to take it all yourself but just know that whatever you're feeling is completely normal and validating because it's hard work to care for, for a loved one. So you definitely have to have a lot of patience for yourself, a lot of grace and um, just accepting of self that it's not gonna be perfect and that's okay.
0: (laughs) Jenny or Caroline, would you add anything?
3: I think my uh, recommendation would be really do a self-evaluation and have that really honest check-in with yourself being the caregiver all the emotions you're feeling it is very natural and expected but most of all um, be open to accepting some help because as you go down this journey sometimes you know it is quite a lengthy journey depending on the disease of your loved one and um, we need to make sure you, the caregiver as a whole person is well taken care of before they can safely care for their loved one. So doing that self check-in, whether it's with their family or with their primary physicians um, involved in the care is quite important.
0: Jenny, any last words of wisdom to share?
3: My big thing
2: is just don't hesitate to ask for the help, um, whether it's from, you know, there's all the resources out there, but there's the family and then there's the friends. And if you go to church, I have so many people who will, you know, post a sign at their church saying, I just need help to go grocery shopping. And it's amazing how many people step in going, well, I can do that or to, you know, do the laundry for them. Something simple like that, where it takes that little burden off of, the caregiver where they can sit and be the, the son or the daughter or the spouse and just, you know, be the loved one instead of just the caregiver. Mm -hmm. Cause that I think starts to weigh on that caregiver is that, that feeling of loss of being that family member and, you know, just being able to love and care on them, kind of going back to Rochelle with her mom is, you know, stepping out of that caregiver role and being able to place her mom. She was then able to step back into being that daughter role, mm-hmm. being a part of her, that care team with her mom and stuff was, you know, a reminder, you know, every time she'd start stressing about it herself, it was like, well, wait, wait remember, we do this all the time. Like, we've got this. We'll hold you and walk you through this. And as a team, we all kind of were able to do that, which was absolutely an amazing feeling to not just, you know, do it for anybody out there, but for somebody that we care for on our team also um, was really nice. And and it was that, you know, don't hesitate. Just go ahead and, and jump right in and, you know, let the care team know, whoever, you know, has those resources. Uh, It reminds me of a story um, uh, back when I was out case managing, I had a patient who started um, declining, so needed more care, was already in a memory care unit, but the daughter knew that it was about to be the end, and she wanted to spend every moment with her dad, and it was just the two of them all their lives, and so she was like, I'm going to take this on. Long talk of all the necessities that go along with caring for somebody at home, um, hospital bed, the bedside commodes, the overbed table, medications, the changing, the feeding, the different types of feeding, it, it's a lot, and really making sure that she understood that, even with understanding it, she agreed to take him home, but still hit that wall of just being overwhelmed with everything. And, you know, I always take the time at the end of my visits to, to jot down my notes and ask, you know, how are you doing as a caregiver? How are you doing? And she had just kind of nonchalantly said that, a friend of hers. She was on the women's softball team, the USA team, and she uh, was able to go out and do the the women's just adult softball league local, and she missed playing softball. She missed her friends, and so they were inviting her back out, and she was like, "I don't have I don't have that time," and I said, "We can make the time. What day? What time is it?" We were able to get caregiver support for those we actually did the four hours so she could play the softball game and then hang out with them afterwards. And it was just a, the change. The next time I saw her, she was more lively. She was, you know, more compassionate and caring towards her dad, which is exactly what she wanted. And so my big thing is don't hesitate to, to speak up and say something because there's, there's a solution out there.
0: <laughs> oh, Jenny, the stories that you've shared today, I'm so appreciative. And I appreciate all of you for for sharing your your expertise that I know comes from not just your professional, you know, uh, qualifications, but certainly from your heart. So Rochelle, Jenny and Caroline, thank you so much for being here with us today. And thank you all for joining us today on The Promise. We look forward to sharing more stories of compassion and caring with you in future episodes. Make sure to listen to all our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, go to providence.org. Please note that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And at Providence, we see the life in you.